0: the State Archives of North Carolina. Connecting the Docks, a podcast connecting archival materials to fascinating, true stories from around the Old North State.
1: Welcome to Connecting the Docks. I'm your host, Andrea Gabriel. The murder of Nell Cropsey is the final story in our series, Murder, Mystery, and Mayhem, where archival documents connect us to a crime, a misstep, or something mystifying in North Carolina's past. In the next three episodes, we'll share the story of Nell Cropsey, a young woman gone missing from the North Carolina town of Elizabeth City. The year is 1901. It's not an unfamiliar story. A relationship between a young woman and her suitor ends, and she disappears shortly afterwards. We're going to talk about the records in our collections that document the crime, the trials, and the aftermath. And we start right off with court testimony, which sets the stage for the story. Today in the studio, I'm joined by archivists Debbie Blake and Chris Meekins. Hello to you both. Hi. Hello. We begin with episode one, Nell's Disappearance and Recovery. Debbie, tell me a little bit about how you came to this story.
2: It's a very interesting story, and it's one that I had heard before, and I really figured it was kind of a cut and dried case. But then I got to talking to Chris about it, and since he's from Elizabeth City, he kind of brought a totally different perspective to the story than what I had. William Hardy and Mary Louise Ryder Cropsey were native New Yorkers, and they arrived in Elizabeth City in April of 1898. And what we know about them from the census is that they had 10 children in the family, but one son died in infancy. But there were six daughters in the house when they moved into the house in Elizabeth City. So there were very often gentlemen callers in the house. Nell herself, who's the focus of our story, her name was Ella, Ella Maud, but she was often called Nell. And she was born in July of 1882, and she was 19 at the time that she disappeared, And Jim Wilcox was her suitor, and he began calling on her in June of 1898, a couple of months after they had arrived. Now... One really really interesting aspect of this case or one that really drew me to this case was that we have complete court transcripts and testimony from all of the major players of the trial with one very notable exception which we'll talk about today. In this particular case is State versus James Wilcox, it was tried twice at the county level and it was tried twice at the supreme court level. So and we have transcripts of all four of those trials. And we have, in addition to that, numerous newspaper accounts of this particular um, case. So at the State Archives of North Carolina, we have an enormous amount of information um, related to this particular case.
1: Chris, you come to it a little bit differently because you're a native of Elizabeth City and you grew up with this story, I'm sure. Can you tell us a little bit about your approach?
0: I can't honestly remember when I first learned about the story. It just seemed to always have been there. We, I literally grew up in the same neighborhood as the Cropsey house. Most likely, I heard it first from my grandfather and his take on it, but also it could have been just as a ghost story amongst kids in the neighborhood, that sort of thing. My grandfather always thought that her father had something to do with Nell's death, and he based that on rumors that he had from his older brothers who were about the age of the Cropsy sisters and may have dated some of them. You know, this is my first time at looking beyond those childhood notions and childhood remembrances and taking a look at the records.
2: On the night of November 20th, 1901, Wilcox was at the Cropsey house along with Roy Crawford, who was Nell's older sister, Olive's suitor. And there were several other family members there, including a cousin from New York named Carrie. And the group was all gathered in the kitchen, and Nell was working on some mending of clothing that she was doing because she was gonna leave and go back to New York for a visit when her New York relatives left. Nell had recently broken off the relationship between her and Jim. They had been broken up for about a couple of weeks and had not spoken to each other. But he still continued to come over to the house regularly, just like the rest of the group did. Olive, who's often called Ollie, testified that Wilcox left to go home about 11 o'clock. And at his request, Nell went with him to the front porch. So about 20 minutes or so later, Crawford left Ollie, who was sharing a room with Nell, said about 1230 or one o'clock in the morning, she woke up and she saw that her sister was not in bed. She'd been awakened by the sound of dogs barking in the yard, and she heard someone say, and I'm quoting here, they called for Papa to get his gun, that someone was in there. And I set up to see if Nell was in bed. She wasn't there. And in fact, she wasn't anywhere in the house because they searched the house at that point to try to find out where Nell was. And they all were getting very upset and were crying. So at that point, Papa and Uncle Henry went over to see if Jim was home. So about 2 a.m., they notified the police that Nell was missing and that they were going to go over to get Jim. It was about 3 o'clock a.m. by the time they brought James Wilcox back to the Cropsy house. And Ollie said, and I'm quoting here again, And Mama went over and took hold of his arm and said, Jim, for my sake and for your mother's sake, tell me where Nell is. Jim answered, I could swear that I could not say where she is. I left her on the porch. I could swear and kiss a Bible. I don't know. I left her on the porch crying. So Ollie's testimony about what Jim said is essentially the same thing that was reported in the newspapers when when Jim was ultimately questioned by the police. And at that hearing, Jim said essentially the same thing.
0: The first time we hear the story in the local newspapers, it's picked up by the North Carolinian on November 28, 1901. That's a weekly paper that we have in our collection on microfilm. After Nell's disappearance, local police examined Wilcox and Leroy Crawford, the two men who were in the room. That night. Wilcox uh, tells essentially the same story as Debbie said, as he had before the story he told the family and the story he would repeat endlessly. And then he was released on his own recognizance. Crawford, when interviewed, stated that he knew nothing of the matter. Then we see, again, more information, this time in a Raleigh paper, The News and Observer, dated December 14, 1901. Wilcox issues a public letter of rebuttal to a letter that was published a few days before by William Apes Cropsey Sr., that's Nell's father, who had accused Wilcox in the paper of not only knowing but said he was responsible for Nell's death. And so, Wilcox's rebuttal is, again, consistent with the statement he had made earlier to the police and to the family, and again, one that he repeats any time that they ask him.
1: So... The facts that I'm going to relate here come actually from Ollie's testimony. She's under cross-examination by E.F. Idlet, who is the attorney for the defense. Ollie testifies that during the evening, the group had discussed methods of suicide. Jim Wilcox had said he would do it by drowning, that he had nearly drowned one time before, and that it had been a pleasant sensation. Nell, however, stated that she would not like to drown, that she would rather freeze to death. According to Ollie's testimony, Nell said, quote, I would not want to drown and have my hair all come out. She would rather freeze to death. The discussion of suicide becomes a pivotal argument of the defense's case of Jim Wilcox.
2: It's interesting that a discussion like this would come up in, in a group. It's very eerie. In hindsight, to be perfectly honest, how many times in a group do we get in discussions like this? Um, And then you wonder, how in the world did we ever get to this place? How did we get to talking about um, something like this?
0: Later, it just takes on a bigger significance than it had in your casual conversation. It really does. It's also interesting that the prosecution is trying to use this to show that Nell could not have committed suicide because she was against the idea of drowning herself. And so that's also part of the linchpin of the argument.
1: The defense is really pushing this idea of suicide, that Nell commits suicide.
0: I mean, your choices are she's disappeared on her own, never to be seen again, someone murdered her, or she committed suicide. search for Nell herself focused on the brown waters of the Pasquatank River. Weeks of searching had produced many leads, but all of that came to nothing. The Cropsies spared no expense in having this search done. They hired a submarine light, and they gave money towards a detective. They brought in bloodhounds from Virginia. Hurricane Branch, a famous bloodhound detective, brought his dogs in to see if they could find a scent of Nell. And the missing girl's story was picked up by hundreds, if not thousands, of articles in newspapers worldwide. It was a media sensation, the likes of which had rarely been seen at the time. It sort of became a, we saw Nell here, we saw Nell there. She was in several cities in North Carolina sightings, and then she was in D.C., and she was in Baltimore and Atlanta. In the New York Times, it was reported that in Baltimore, John... Swerker, clerk of the Chief of Police Farnham, believes that he saw Nell Cropsey in the company of two young men on a streetcar last evening. Elizabeth City was mentioned repeatedly, and he heard the girl distinctly say, I will never go back to Elizabeth City. So, whether it's in their imagination or, or what, people are believing they see Nell, and this guy's hearing a conversation now. There is an Elizabeth City or was an Elizabeth City County, Virginia, which is probably closer to Maryland than Elizabeth City, North Carolina, and that could have been what he heard on the cart. Who knows? Or he could have been making it up out of whole cloth. It's just fascinating that this story Unless
1: it explodes, and everybody's talking about the disappearance of Nalcropsey.
2: Another interesting fact I think about this is too, the newspapers were not just reporting she was missing; they followed every bit of this trial to the point where they were sending reporters down here, and they stayed here while the story was going on. So it wasn't just a one-time. There's a girl missing, and they talk about it a little bit. It really became a sensation. What's really interesting to me is the early time period of this becoming such a media sensation, because the first one we really often think about is the Lindbergh baby disappearance. And that's not until 1932. This is 1901. Newspapers have picked up on this and are running with
1: it. Do you think partially that's because she comes from a wealthy, prominent family in Elizabeth City?
0: Could be. With connections to the North. And I think At first, some of the New York papers pick it up because of the family coming from that area, and the uncle probably gets it in the papers as a a human interest story, and we need to find my niece. It is interesting, as Debbie said, it's not just that they've picked up the local paper news story and repeated it, but they are sending reporters down and embedding them in the town and getting firsthand testimony from those reporters to publish stories in their papers.
2: On December 28th, in the Raleigh News and Observer, it was reported, and I'm quoting here, after five weeks of mystery and speculation, the body of the missing Nellie Cropsey suddenly appeared this morning in the river, 150 yards in front of the Cropsey house, floating in four feet of water and about 40 feet to the right of a direct line with the house. What's really interesting here is that suddenly really is the operative word here because this part of the river had been searched repeatedly, multiple times in a day. They had searched this part of the river, and it's not until 37 days later after she's gone missing that Nell Cropsey is found in the Pasquatank River. Not only that, but floating right in front of her own home. It's just really
0: strange. In searching, not only did they have the submarine light that we heard about and looking underwater with divers, they were dragging the river from a boat and tossing out anchors and dragging to see if they could snag a body and nothing. Um, so it was a very intense search. So
1: then the next piece we see of this story comes from testimony.
0: Testimony of C.A. Long in the March uh, 1902 court case. Long says at about 10 o'clock on December 27th, he was fishing with his friend J.D. Stillman about 50 yards from the shore uh, near the Cropsey house when they saw the body. Quote, we shoved up to it and run right down near the body and run an oar down, end quote. That was to anchor the body so the body wouldn't float away. They put the oar there and to mark its location. Then, quote, they took the boat ashore and saw Mr. Cropsey first, and he came out and recognized the body, and then he went back, and then the doctors went out.
2: And that same article, the same News and Observer article goes on to say, and I'll quote again, The news flew over the city like wildfire, and within a short while, over 2,000 people had assembled on the river waiting for the body to be brought ashore. The coroner was immediately notified and selected a jury of prominent citizens. The physicians were called to make an examination of the body. The evidence given by the physicians does not tend to show any external or internal signs of violence. So, within 30 Minutes of them finding the body, the coroner, whose name was Dr. Isaiah Fearing, convened a jury and summoned three physicians to come and conduct an autopsy. Within an hour of her recovery, about 11 o'clock in the morning, the autopsy began in an outbuilding on the Cropsy property. Um, citizens were gathered. Of course, we already know we've got over 2,000 people milling around here.
0: What's the population of Elizabeth City back then? Do we know? Inside the city proper, it's about 8,000. If you add just adjacent to it, like where the Cropsey's were living, that's another two. So right around 10,000. So quite a, quite wow. a quite a lot of people.
2: It That's was a center right.
0: of commerce in the area.
2: All these people are gathered around, and it took the police to hold them back. But the police did keep them back from the outbuilding where the autopsy was being um, was being
0: conducted. All the citizens, including the police chief, Dawson, moved Nell's body to the outbuilding that Debbie mentioned on the Cropsey property, which is still there, by the way. In the trial, um, the state solicitor, George W. Ward, questioned Dr. Fearing at length for Fearing Who had been the coroner for only three years this was his first autopsy
1: so normally we would have seen an autopsy you know nowadays taking place in a sterile condition but here they took the body up from the river and they sort of created
2: makeshift autopsy room, basically. Right. Well, you have to think not only in terms of there's a lack of sterility in a case like this, but there's also a lack of cleanliness. There's also a lack of privacy. This woman is just about to be Autopsied, and there are people all over the place, and I'm sure the police took every made every effort to make sure um, that nothing was on view and stuff like that. But it still is very different from what we think about today. But we also have to think about the fact that they didn't have a lot of the advances we have today, and they were dealing with the decay of a body in spite of the fact that it was really, really cold that day. As soon as she comes out of the water, there's going to be a certain amount of decay that starts to happen. Plus, they're losing evidence that they need to get right away. So, yeah, it's different from what it was years ago. You also remember,
0: as far as they know, and as, as far as anyone knows, that body had been in the water for 37 days, Right. so it was incumbent upon them to examine it as quickly as they could once it came That's
1: out right. of the water. So I, we have a copy here of the physician's report, but uh, Debbie, can you tell us a little bit about what they found? Um,
2: yeah, before I do that, I'll tell you just a little bit about some of the testimony for Dr. Isaiah Fearing, because much of what we know about this case, we can just read in the testimony, and he tells us what he did. The autopsy showed that Nell Cropsey was a virgin, had a small amount of undigested food in her stomach, no water in her lungs, and no apparent signs of violence on the body. Um, and they stopped the autopsy for lunch <laughs> and then reconvened about 3.30 or 4.00. At that time, they did a more thorough autopsy on her head. And the reason they did that was because one of the coroner's jurymen mentioned that he thought he saw something on her temple. So they did a closer inspection of her head, and they did indeed find a contusion on her left temple. And Dr. Fearing's opinion was it was a blow to the head. He suggested that some padded instrument caused the blow, and it would have rendered her unconscious. So when he was asked in the testimony about the lack of water in the lungs what that indicated, he answered death by not being drowned.
0: All of these things that they're finding are points in the case that they're trying to prove one way or the other Prosecutor Ward followed up with the rigorous questioning about a lack of water in the lungs and the conditions of the heart and the stomach and the brain as related to a drowning. The defense objected at each and every question and was overruled by the judge at each and every question. On cross-examination, the defense's attorney, Edward Idlett asked Fearing if he'd ever performed an autopsy on anyone that had drowned. Fearing answered that he had not.
2: Dr. Fearing maintained steadfastly, though, that this case was very different from most other cases cases, and I'm quoting him here, it's the wintertime, very cold weather, and the body was in a perfect state of preservation, and there was no decomposition except in the brain. That's ending that quote. The other doctors there were Julian E. Wood and Oscar McMullen, and they were also questioned, but they didn't spend anything like the amount of time questioning them that they did Dr. Fearing. All of them had distinctive tasks that they were supposed to be performing during this autopsy. Fearing himself as the one who did the operation, which is why he got most of the questions. McMullen dictated the notes, while a clerk who was um, named John Sykes wrote them down. And Dr. Wood was the county's health officer, and that's why he was there, and he was sort of in charge of the whole operation. All of the physicians were questioned, and most of the jurymen were also questioned during the trial. The physician's report that you're talking about what came from the autopsy and the physician's official report entered into evidence said Ella M. Cropsey came to her death by being stricken a blow on the left temple and by being drowned in the Pasquatank River. I think what's important at this point is that the physician's report makes it seem very unlikely this was an accident or that it was suicide.
0: I agree. The whole of that testimony and cross-examination or detailed examination by the prosecutor is to show that if there was water in the lungs, she would have been alive and awake going into the water and then would have sucked water into her lungs. But if she had been alive but unconscious when she went into the water, she would not have done that. And so that would indicate there was something other than suicide in the case.
1: Yeah, I was surprised that there was no water in their lungs after 37 days. So she was knocked in the head dead before she went into the water.
2: At least so unconscious that she could not consciously draw enough breath in to bring water into her lungs.
0: Okay. Right. And that's what the testimony. And I think it's Possibly one of the most ironic statements in the case that Fearing says, This case is very different from most others, because I think it is, but not in the way that he meant it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that takes care of the murder of Nail Cropsey, episode one. And next week's episode, the second episode, we'll look at more court testimony and discover that this case is finally settled after four trials. Debbie and Chris, thanks for bringing us this story today. Connecting the Docs is a podcast created by members at the State Archives of North Carolina, Debbie Blake, Ellen Brooks, Andrea Gabriel, Donna Kelly, Randon McRae, and Chris Meekins. Thanks to our engineer, Tom Normanly. For a look at the documents we discussed in today's story about Nell Cropsey, visit our History for All the People blog at ncarchives.wordpress.com and click on Connecting the Docs. I'm your host, Andrea Gabriel. Thanks for listening.